The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Just to make it easier for me, can you raise your hand if you've ever seen the Biltmore? If you've ever seen the Biltmore? Okay, thank you. You can put your hands down. I saw it for the first time a number of years ago. At that time, I was still living in Michigan, and my wife's family is from South Carolina. So for Thanksgiving, we would make the trip down and often celebrate Christmas down there as well. And one year, my mother and father-in-law watched our children, and we uh, went with my wife and all of her siblings, and we toured the Biltmore. Now, this was at Christmas time. And so as we were in line, there's this part where you kind of cross, and then you can see the Biltmore, and it was all decorated with lights, this beautiful mansion. I was a little starstruck and felt a little unworthy to be there. So I told them, for the rest of the evening, please address me as Master Bruce Wayne, and <laughs> that's how I'll navigate the, <laughs> the Biltmore. And so this, this is this incredible mansion that you pay money to tour as a guest, and they show you room by room all these things that you're to be in awe of. And when you're in, you're to just be amazed at all of the intricacies that are prepared for you. Now, this morning, in a somewhat similar way, what God does through the Apostle Paul is he takes us on a grand tour of the incredible, incredible grace of God in his son, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to walk that tour with him as he gives us room-by-room views to what God has amazingly done for us in Christ. Now, the title of today's sermon is that. I think it's the theme of the text, and that's God's amazing grace in Christ. And if you don't have your Bible open yet, we're in Ephesians 1. If you would like to use a pew Bible, that's page 1159. You definitely want the text of Scripture open. We're going to interact with it. Now, just as I was outside the Biltmore, and before you even walk in, you get a little bit of a picture of the size and scope of what you're about to see. I want to give you a little bit of a picture of the size and scope of what we're about to see. What we're going to see in Ephesians 1, especially verses 3 through 14, is actually only one sentence in the original Greek. In the original, it has 202 words. And here it is combining these amazing and wonderful truths of what God does for people in Christ, even from the outside There's a few structural things that we can see. The first thing we're going to see throughout the text is that God the Father is the doer of all of this marvelous grace. He is the actor. He is the causer. He is the initiator. He is the reason why all of these wonderful things can be enjoyed. The second major theme that we're going to see is all of the grace that God is the doer of is experienced in the house that is Christ, incorporated in the body of Christ. We see that repeatedly, actually 11 times in just this one sentence it says, in Christ. And the third thing that we'll see is that the us that get to be in there are in there solely by grace. So the us who are in there are in there solely by grace. So this wonderful and amazing passage shows us how great God the Father is, what God the Father has done for us in Christ, and how blessed we are to receive it. So as we tour it, we'll go room by room. And verse 3 is actually a little bit like what I saw in Colonial Williamsburg this past week when I was there with my family over spring break. And that is a coat of arms above the entryway that lets you know 
who this belongs to and what it's like. Okay, so verse 3 is very much like the coat of arms. Look with me in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I call this the coat of arms because everything else we'll see in this glorious mansion is true because of this verse. And everything else that follows happens because of this verse. God gives amazing grace in Christ. Now we're gonna look really carefully at the words because I think they're so important. They're inspired, breathed out by God and we wanna see what they mean. It's interesting that the word blessed is used at the beginning. We would probably use the word praised because that is similar to what it means. But blessed would be a Jewish way to convey formal praise. The closest word we have in English is the word doxology. When we're talking about a formal statement of praise for how great God is. And that's why Paul with Jewish and Old Testament heritage says blessed. So Praise be to God for who he is. And then you'll notice he plays with the word blessed. Just in verse 3, he uses it three times. Blessed be God who has, and now he plays with the word, blessed us. And what has he blessed us with? Every spiritual blessing, same word, used three different ways to show us that all of this is from God. As we saw, God the Father is the agent, the doer, the initiator of all this activity. And don't miss, in Christ. That is the realm in which any of this blessing can occur. This is God's in Christ grace, we might say. And then spiritual blessing is actually a summary coat of arms term for all that's going to follow in the remainder of this one single sentence. These are all explanations of the blessing that is for us in Christ by God the Father's doing. And then interestingly at the end it says in the heavenly places. Commentators struggle with exactly what's being referred to here. My best guess is it's showing us where the grace comes from and where the grace brings us to. The grace comes from the heavenly realm of God's manifest abode, but that's also where the grace is intended to lead us to. And we'll see that in all the verses that follow, that from eternity to eternity, God is doing what he's doing in Christ to lead us to himself. Let's see that now. Now that we've gone through the coat of arms, we see the first beautiful room in this majestic tour, and it's verse 4. Even as he, and of course the he is God the Father, he's the subject and the doer, even as he chose us in him, the him is Jesus Christ, we just saw that from verse 3, even as God chose us in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The word chose is the Greek word elect. And I want to spend a little time on that because I know that word can be complex, but right now just know that's the word. Notice the choosing is in Christ, in the incorporate, which means literally in the body of Christ. Notice when the election happens. The Bible says it happens before the foundation of the world, which would certainly indicate that God's choice is not something about us and our merit, but something about him and his grace. God in his grace has made a choice irrespective of what we would be, but rather based on who he is. But notice the purpose of it, the clause that follows, that we should be holy 
and blameless before him. Holy and blameless. I know this is a technical thing, but I don't think in the Greek is a purpose clause. I think it's a result clause. It's telling us what God would make us. Let me quote one commentator who wrote this. Holiness and blameless are the results, not the basis of God's election. God is not electing people because they're very holy. God is electing people and then making them holy. Now, in the Bible, holiness is used in multitudes of ways, to be fair. Sometimes the word holy is used declaratively. God has washed us. He has sanctified us. He has cleansed us. It's just declaring forensically what God has done. Other times the word holy is used transformationally. We are changing from one degree of glory to the next. We are pursuing holiness without which no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12, verse 14. But most importantly, and this is the one I think we miss the most, not only is holiness a declaration of what God makes people, and not only is it a transformation of what God is making people, but most importantly, holiness is to set apart. It is to pull someone out of something towards something. And look at how verse 4 ends. What are we being pulled towards? Towards him. Isn't God good that he would bring us to himself? He has elected us and made us holy so that we could be in his presence. He has reversed the curse. Holiness is then relational. And let me quote Peter O'Brien who writes, God is the origin and source of salvation as well as the goal of salvation. God saves to bring us to himself. Well, I told you the word elect can be a tough one, and I know that one can be difficult for Christians. It was difficult in my own life. I remember really struggling with the idea that God elects. I remember arguing vociferously that God must not elect. And then in college, I was kneeling on the wooden steps in my dormitory, and I was reading Ephesians for the first time on my own, and I saw that God elects, and I thought, well, I have to square with this. <laughs> The Bible clearly says that God elects. Now, as God's taught me his word, I want to give you some thoughts on election. If you're a note taker, these are not in the notes. I can send them to you later. I'm going to give you six thoughts, and then I'll deal with two common objections. Okay, six thoughts, and then two common objections to election. First, what I would want you to know is that election, number one, is a central doctrine in Scripture that is woven all through the Bible. It's a central doctrine in Scripture woven all through the Bible. I don't know what your experience was like, but I have to be honest about my own experience. The reason I was so surprised by election is because I had had a very shallow interaction with the Bible. I had heard teaching that was skimming the Bible, and in my own reading, I was skimming the Bible. I had made supplemental devotionals, which are a very, very good thing, but I'd made them the sum total of my diet. And so the first time I opened the actual Bible and read it, I realized this is all over the place, and it cannot be avoided. That's the first observation I'd want us to have, that the Bible talks about election without blinking or bashfulness from cover to cover. All right, the second thing that we would note about election is that election is rooted in God's unmerited, unconditional, pretemporal grace. Didn't we see that in the verse? He chose us before the foundation of the world, which means it's pretemporal. It also must mean that it's unconditional, and it further must mean that it's unmerited. Now, we see this throughout the Bible. God chooses Abraham 
not because of anything that has to do with Abraham. Later, we read in Deuteronomy 7, God tells Israel why he has chosen Israel. You might expect him at that point to say, Israel, I've chosen you because I chose Abraham, but that's not what God says. God actually makes clear to them the reasons that are not a factor for him. He said, I did not choose you based on your size or on your strength, and surely not based on their spiritual sensitivity, but simply because of his good pleasure. God chooses not based on human merit or condition or time. He does not look through the funnel of time to see what we might be. He instead chooses according to his own pleasure. All right, here's a third observation about election, and this is the one that I argued against the most. This is what I was most concerned about when I was really opposing what I now see the Bible so clearly says. I said, I said election will kill evangelism. And then I read Acts 18, and in Acts 18, Paul is experiencing persecution in the city of Corinth, and the Lord speaks to Paul apparently audibly, and the Lord tells Paul this, the reason you can get up and go and face difficult things is because I have many people in this city. According to God, then, election fuels evangelism. Evangelism should happen more often when you know that it doesn't depend on our rhetorical ability, but on God's sovereign grace. All right, another observation. Election is part of an unbreakable golden chain of God's saving grace. Look in verse 4, the verse that we're in right now. I'd like you to see it from the text that we're in. It begins by saying, he chose us, But then it tells us he'll make us holy, and then it culminates by saying he'll bring us to himself. That's very similar to Romans 8, where we read that those who he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. Notice that the sequence is unbreakable. If we rejoice in glorification, must we not also equally rejoice in election? God begins what he completes, an election is the necessary pretemporal foundation for this. All right, a sixth observation, or a fifth, excuse me. Election should humble us deeply. If election, the doctrine of it, makes you feel or fear an elitist mentality, then we are not properly understanding election. It should humble us much further than any other approach to Scripture, because it makes clear to us all of it is grace. And the sixth observation, election is the ultimate explanation for why anyone responds favorably to the gospel. We are hostile. We are at enmity. We struggle to accept and believe biblical truth, and we know this in our own experience. But for the grace of God, we would not even receive the truth that is held out to save us. All right, let me handle, to the best of my finite ability, a couple objections that are common. This was, these objections were made by me as well, so they're they're personal. One of them was, well, I don't understand. I mean, if God elects, why doesn't he just save everyone? This was a common objection that I had in my own life. I mean, we read scriptures that God talks about a desire he has to see people saved. We know God has omnipotent power, and yet not everyone is saved. 
One of the ways I tried to overcome this previously is I said, well, people must have inviolable free will. Maybe God wants to do that, but he can't because we have such strong free will, he cannot or will not overcome it. But if you think about that, does that really make sense? That we would have will stronger than God's? Surely that one can't be right. Or does it really make sense to say, he will not override free will when that's what we need? I give my children a bunch of freedom, but if they go to run in the street, I tackle them. (laughs) Their freedom is not sacrosanct. I'll override it if it needs to be overridden. So even if you go with that argument, it still doesn't solve the problem. Still we have a need that God in his wisdom is somehow not answering the way we think he ought to. So let me give some thoughts. God has made us with a conscience and with moral agency. And ultimately, we cannot fully grasp all of the why that only his infinite mind can encompass. But here's what we do know from Scripture. Number one, we are the effective agent and cause of our condemnation, not God. Number two, God is the effective agent and cause of our salvation, not us. So all of the condemnation, we did cause. All of the salvation, he alone has caused. And when you think about it this way, you stop asking, why doesn't election encompass everyone? And you start asking, I can't believe God would save anyone. That helps us when we realize it that way. All right, another objection I had that maybe you have. All right, I see the Bible teaches it, but I still don't like it. (laughs) I see it's there, but it still makes me uneasy. Here I'd want to remind us that the Bible holds things together supernaturally that are in a tension that we naturally struggle with. For example, we in our common culture have a category for fatalism, or we have a category for individualism, contracausal, absolute negative freedom. But the Bible doesn't present either of those as true. We don't live in a fatalistic universe, nor do we live in a universe in which we could truly do whatever we want at any time. We live in a universe in which God is absolutely sovereign, and yet the Bible says humans have real responsibility for which we're held in account. God works through this throughout the Bible. Think of Genesis where Joseph's brothers are doing evil for which they are culpable, and yet God is doing good even through their evil. Most poignantly, this is seen at the cross. Yes, though it stretches and in fact exceeds our human comprehension, God is fully sovereign and we are fully responsible. My favorite explanation of this is Charles Spurgeon. He said, imagine a train track and one rail is divine sovereignty and the other is human responsibility and they run parallel and where they meet is only at a heavenly anvil. And I like this description. It reminds us that only God knows exactly how those meld together. We just know that they run parallel. Well, my own journey through the Bible disoriented me for some time, and I wrestled and struggled. And I certainly want to walk with you if you're in that spot where you're wrestling with how can this all be. I struggle with it. But while we're wrestling, a pastoral word of wisdom from the hymn writer Isaac Watts. Here's what he wrote when wrestling with similar difficulties in the Bible. But, O my soul, if truth so bright should dazzle and confound thy sight, 
yet still his written word obey and wait the great decision day. There's much wisdom in that. Let the dazzling truth drive you to trust what you do now and trust God with what we don't. God says this in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Them which are revealed are for us to obey. Let us trust what he's revealed, even if we can't fully encompass what remains in his knowledge alone. All right, now verse five, we continue back in the house where we go room by room to see the incredible blessings we have in Christ. We first saw, and it makes sense that this one would be first, the first room is that God elects in Christ. But now the second room is that God predestines to adoption in Christ. The end of verse four says, in love, I think that continues along with verse five, in love, which I do believe reveals the motive that is driving God's work, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Predestined means to choose in advance, to foreordain, to cause to be. One theologian put it well. Predestined is a word that means an eternal decision that renders certain what comes to pass. God has rendered certain what is going to come to pass, and what he's rendered certain is adoption. Adoption in the Greco-Roman world in which Paul lived meant that your belonging ceased with your former family, and it now and forevermore was with your new forever family, and that's what happens to those who come through Christ. They belong to God alone. I showed you from verse 4 that the reason ultimately God is doing what he's doing is to bring people to himself. Rejoice in that again in verse 5. God is saving people so that they can be in his family, his children, through his perfect son, Jesus. And he is doing this, notice, according to the purpose of his will. God does what he does because of his decree. In his decree, all things happen as he has rendered certain. Skim down, look in verse 11, because we'll see the word predestined again. So look with me, please, in verse 11 of Ephesians 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works, notice, all things according to the counsel of his will. The word predestined and purpose are united with God's decree. Whatever God decrees happens. It comes to pass. It cannot be thwarted. This is very good news for us because we would certainly thwart the good plans of God if we had the capability. Now, purpose is the word used in the ESV, and it's a correct word, but I like the way the NIV translates it with the word pleasure because it helps us see God's heart behind him doing what he decrees. God decrees what he decrees because he delights in it. God delights to adopt people. God delights to elect people. God delights to redeem people. God delights to save unworthy sinners. One author puts it this way, pleasure signifies not merely the purpose of God, but the delight God takes in his plans. These things all culminate with a redounding echo. So look in verse 6. We might say this is the 
foyer of the house. Everything has to pass through here and return to here over and over. Here's a room that shows us God elects. Here's a room that shows us God adopts. But you have to keep going through this room to get in and out of these rooms to the praise of his glorious grace. All that God does shows us how gracious he is, how glorious he is, how worthy he is of praise. Grace is a free gift, not deserved, but given freely at cost to the giver. And here the giver is being praised because of what he's done. Notice, in the beloved. Most of the English translations rightly capitalize the B. I don't know if yours does or not, but it should be capitalized. This is again referring to in Christ. All that we have, we have in Christ. Last night with my children, my wife is out of town with my younger children's uh, children. My brother-in-law's with her. They're helping my mother-in-law who shattered her shoulder. So last night I was trying to put the kids to bed and try to keep ahead on the dishes so that I don't, you know, when she comes home. <laughs> uh, and as I had a few minutes before I put them down, I opened their children's Bible and we read the Tower of Babel from Genesis 11. And you might remember this part of Genesis 11, verse 4, before they go to make the Tower of Babel, they say this, let us make a name for ourselves that will be remembered. But verse 6 reminds us the only name that's eternally worthy of being praised and remembered to the praise of God's glorious grace. I'm reminded of Philippians 2 where we read that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. I always think of that great scene at the end of the Lord of the Rings where the hobbits prepare to bow, but then they're told to stand and Aragorn rightly says to them, you bow to no one, nor does our Lord. We all recognize to the praise of his glorious grace is everything we have. Paul, Paul concludes 11 amazing chapters in Romans by saying from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. The redounding echo of history will be glory to God. Praise God for his grace, his grace that is glorious. We see now the next room as we pass through the entryway and are again in a room, and this room shows us that God redeems in Christ. This is now verse 7. We saw God elects in Christ, God adopts in Christ. It's all to the praise of his glorious grace, but our next and third room is God redeems in Christ, verse 7. In him, again, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. To redeem means to purchase back something that has been lost, something that has been enslaved, something that's ownership has gone to the wrong person or place. Jesus has redeemed us. What was the currency? It's right in the text. He redeemed us through what currency? What was the cost? The answer is his blood. And in Leviticus and in Hebrews, that phrase blood is used to refer to one giving their life. So it's a way to describe the entire life of someone given for someone else. So Jesus has redeemed us at an extremely, incalculably high cost himself. He did this on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus died 
so that, the next phrase, we could receive the forgiveness of our trespasses. Normally, Paul actually uses the word sin in the singular or trespass in the singular. Here he uses it in the plural. And I think in context, the reason why is to show that we have sinned against a person repeatedly. We have not merely broken some standards or some general concepts of right living. We have sinned against our God, and yet our God has sent His Son to redeem us from the enslavement of our own consequences that we had accrued. Through Him alone we are forgiven. This is why verse 8 says, which He lavished upon us. God sending His Son is lavish grace. And it's also the only and proper way for one to be saved, which is why verse 8 begins with, in all wisdom and insight. God's salvation at the cross is both lavish in its grace, but also infinite in its wisdom and insight. Forgiveness is required because we have enmity between us and God because of our many, many trespasses. But atonement is possible because the cross of Christ is God's before the foundation of the world in Christ's grace through which we are saved. Now, I know that it's probably rude to end in the middle of someone's sentence, but to be fair, this is a 202-word long sentence. So we're going to say verse 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14 until next Sunday, Lord willing. They continue the in Christ grace. But now let me kind of pivot the sermon to explain why this grace is so precious and how you can receive it. Notice this grace only comes in Christ. Eleven times in the one sentence, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, this grace is not available outside of Christ. You must come into the mansion. So how do you get in? When I went to the Biltmore, I paid for tickets And they were rather expensive considering how short of a stay (laughs) that I had in there. Is that how it works with God? Do we purchase tickets? Do we have an uncertain stay? Maybe it's short, maybe it's long. It depends on why many people are in line. Do we buy our way in? Is our future uncertain? Praise God, it is not. There are three clues that hint us at that. And they're in verses 1 and 2. I didn't accidentally skip them. Let's go back to verse 1 and 2. Even in this greeting, this prescript, we get incredible gospel clues. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. If you've spent a lot of time in church, you might just zoom past the word Paul. Don't. That is incredible that he would now go by the name Paul that he would only want to be known as Paul. His Jewish given name is Saul. Saul was the name of the first king of Israel, known for his exalted stature, his physical opposing strength. Do you know what the word Paul means in Latin? Small. Here's a man who, before he met Jesus, was known for his strength to run down violators, his strength to persecute those who were on the wrong side of all the issues. And after Jesus, he wants to be known as small, least, little. Why? Because he is who he is, according to verse 1, because of Christ 
Jesus. And he came to Christ Jesus, according to verse 1, by the will of God. Paul understands he is not who he is by his own will. He is not who he is by man's will. He is who he is in Christ by the gracious will of God. So here's clue number one for how we come to be in Christ. We do not come to be in Christ on the basis of our strength or striving. Let's continue in this introduction, which is just packed with significance. Now verse 1 continues, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. There is some well-known issues with exactly what the situation is in the letter. Some of you went to seminary. Some of you use significant study tools during the week. You'll find out if you do so that in Ephesus is a little bit debated whether or not it's in the text or in the heading. Exactly the recipients is a somewhat debated issue. And this is the least situational of all of Paul's letters. He doesn't get into how they know each other or what their background is. That never plays a relevant factor. But who he's referring to are people who otherwise would have no claim with God. Look with me. Flip to chapter 2, please. And in chapter 2, I want you to see from verse 11 through 13 who his audience is and why it's shocking that this audience would be receiving a letter like this. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Therefore remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, which was a derogatory way to make fun of them. They're far off from God. They have no hope. Let's continue. They are called that by the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. If our first clue from Paul was that you don't come to be in Christ through strength, our second clue from the recipients of the letter is you don't come to Christ through having the promises and the covenants, but only through the blood. Now we have a third clue. Well, actually, one more word. Uh, Back in chapter 1, these people are called saints. I remember um, hearing of a little boy who was asked, what is a saint? And he said, it's those people in stained glass windows. (laughs) We tend to think of the word that way. We tend to think of saints as people who did something really great. Here's how one author explains the word saints. Christians are saints, not in the sense that they're very pious, but because of their new relationship they've been brought into by God. They are saints not because of their own doing or good works, but they are saints because of what Christ has done. We use the word saint in some of our worst expressions of this term to talk about what people have done to make them worthy of our estimation. That is the exact opposite. The Bible says you're a saint because of what Christ has done and God's grace on you. All right, here's our third clue. Our first was from Paul. Our second was from the recipients. Here's our third. What person of the Godhead is used in verse 1 in the first phrase? and verse 1 in the middle phrase, and verse 2. All this is from God the Father, but only Christ Jesus is listed thrice. Now look at verse 2. Grace to you from 
God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our first clue is we don't come on our own strength. Our second clue is we don't come because of our heritage or background. And our third clue is we come only by grace, only in Jesus. I think we might need this reminder because sometimes we've started to think we have fellowship with God as an innate right. We don't need to come through Jesus. We don't need to humble ourselves. We just deserve to have an eternal relationship with God. We live in a moment where you hear the word rights very often. Marianne Glendon is a politician, and here's what she wrote. There is no more telling indicator of the extent to which legal notions have penetrated both popular and political discourse than our increasing tendency to speak of what is most important to us in terms of rights, to frame nearly every social controversy as a class of rights. And the idea of rights has come to frame our very view of God. We say, God, we have innate, deserved expectations of good. You owe us, God, an eternal fellowship with you, and you owe us those blessings. This was memorably put by the German poet Heinrich Heine, who in 1856 on his deathbed said this, of course God will forgive me. That's his business. Now, we have the same view in our culture today. I have rights, and I'm entitled to what I receive. But just think of what we just read in Ephesians 1. We are entitled only to the consequences that our sins have accrued. We are entitled only to the just judgment of a perfectly righteous God. What is given here is given in grace. And make no mistake, friend, it only comes in Christ. That means you, and I am talking to all of us, must receive it. So we see here in Ephesians 1 verse 1, he calls them faithful in Christ Jesus. That could be what the Greek grammar means, but several take it as believers in Christ Jesus. But in either way, look down in verse 13 of chapter 1, please. Ephesians 1 verse 13, I want you to not leave here today not knowing how to get in this building This is the mansion of God's amazing grace. How do you get in? Ephesians 1, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed. Friend, if you're here this morning and you know you need to be in that mansion of God's amazing grace, you must trust in Jesus. You have no rights apart from him. And there are no works that purchase your ticket. Flip to chapter 2. These are the verses we read earlier, but see them now in the light of what we're talking about. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friend, you must humble yourself like Paul. See yourself as small and trust in Jesus alone. Not what you add to him, not what you bring to the table, not another entryway, but only in Jesus Christ. So I ask you this morning, are you in this majestic mansion? Are you in Christ? If not, then come and believe in him, even though you must be humbled to do so. But now I would ask those of us who are here, who are in Christ by grace, 
What are we supposed to do with a passage like this? As a preacher, throughout the week as I study the passage, I think through your names, I pray through the church directory, I think through myself and my family, and I think, what is this passage calling me to do? And let me confess something to you this morning. I clearly have a to-do list problem that God is working on me about. I like to-do lists. I like task lists. I know that's weird, (laughs) but I have them, and I check them off, and I feel really great about it. And so passages like this seriously expose a dearth in my spirituality because there is no checklist. There is no task of to-do because sometimes the only purpose of the passage is to say, man, isn't God great? And I need that reminder. See, when you see something great, all you do is rejoice in it. Don't you bask in a beautiful sunset? Don't you just behold a spectacular painting? Don't you just marvel at an incredible symphony? There's no task for you to go do. You just rejoice in beauty you don't deserve. And when that beauty chooses to love you, allow yourself to accept it. Have you had a birthday party where a bunch of people sing and you feel a little awkward? (laughs) But shouldn't you just embrace that someone loves you enough to be there? Here God is telling us in Ephesians 1, I love you like this. Here's what I've done in Christ. Is it not enough to bask in that and receive it? That's what he says he's praying will do. Remember Ephesians 3, 17 through 19? I pray that you would know the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width of the love of God in Christ for us. That is something we need. So what we ought to do with a passage like this is look at our great God. And I want to encourage you to do what took me far too many years to do. Just spend time with him in the Bible and see how great he is. And marvel at mysteries beyond our comprehension because they show a God beyond our comprehension. Look to him. Behold him. But only ever approach him and only ever live in Christ. Now, in the later half of this book, we'll see some very well-known ethical commands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. But we must not forget This is in Christ. That is the only way these things can be. When we're in this mansion of God's marvelous grace, then and only then is the power there for us to live as we ought. One last observation for us, Emmanuel, as a church family. I want you to notice that all of the pronouns were plural. Yes, God does love individual persons. He knows you by name, the number of hairs on your head. That's wonderful that he knows us intimately and personally. But he does view us collectively as an us in Christ. That is so helpful to know. Because that means that in Christ, grace is our story. Grace is our song. Grace is our community. Grace is our destiny, and frankly, we need that reminder when we really struggle being patient with that difficult person who bothers us. We have to remember, yes, God chose us together, and his grace that's working on me is working on her and working on him. 
And surely the person who ordains all things according to the counsel of his good will has placed us together in this place and at this time to carry out the saving grace in Christ that he determined before the foundation of the world. So remember, Emmanuel, let us dwell in this marvelous grace together. Let's look to the Lord in prayer this morning. God, have mercy on me, a sinner who loves to do task in my own strength. And remind me to just behold the greatness of God, to see the amazing grace that you've given us in your son, Jesus, from eternity past to eternity future so that you could bring sinners to yourself through the blood of Jesus. Perhaps someone this morning has not come into that majestic mansion because they've thought they could bring in their own rights, their own works, or they thought maybe there's a back door. Show them that Christ alone is the way. Cause them to believe in him, to trust in him, to call on his name and to enter and to be sealed with the Holy Spirit and to know they will dwell in the house of the Lord forever because they are literally in his son. Move them to saving faith. But move us who are in this wonderful house to remember how we got here and to rejoice in what you've done and what you have for us yet. In your son's name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.